Welcome to the Public Morality. In a matter of days from this recording, the federal government will reach its debt limit. In order to avoid any potential financial calamity, Congress must raise the debt limit and the president must sign it. There are a few Republicans in Congress that are prepared to hold raising the debt limit hostage if their demands are not met. If the debt ceiling is not raised in a timely manner, what might this do to the American economy as well as its standing in the world? To answer these questions and others, we welcome Stephen S. Smith, a professor of political science at the University of Washington in St. Louis. Professor Stephen Smith, welcome to The Public Morality. It's great to be here. I want to begin this conversation by having you provide, let, let us say, a quasi-Reader's Digest version of the debt ceiling. How, how would you explain that, sir? Well, the debt ceiling is a limit on how much in total the federal government is allowed to have been borrowing at any one time. <clears throat> so the current debt limit of a little over $31 trillion uh, is the uh, limit on how much uh, outstanding debt the federal government can have at, at any moment. Uh, back in 1917, when uh, we were in the middle of World War I and quickly ramping up for the war effort, the federal government issued bonds to raise money. Uh, taxes wouldn't be enough, so they quickly sold bonds, and the Congress established a limit on, on the total value of the bonds that could be outstanding at any one time. Ever since then, the federal government has had a, a debt limit, uh, and it's raised in order to allow the federal government to borrow more. We have annual deficits now almost every year, and we've and that's been our situation now for decades. So that debt limit has to be raised uh, to accommodate uh, you know each increasing deficit. Uh, we borrow, of course, uh, money by selling treasury bonds. And those treasury bonds are used to uh, generate cash for the federal government so that it can pay its bills. Um, so occasionally that debt limit needs to be raised and uh, it tends to be controversial because uh, fiscal policy, uh, spending and revenue, taxes and appropriations are controversial. Uh, and this year, uh, the Republicans have already at the beginning of the Congress said that they want serious concessions from the Democrats on spending cuts as a condition for approving the required increase in the in the debt limit. I want to go back uh, to your 1995, uh, when the federal government was shut down for some 22 days. Was that, in your view, sir, a seminal moment that began sort of a annual or semi-annual brinksmanship of stark political divide as it relates to the debt limit? Well, the 95-96 shutdown uh, had to do with something related, but um, technically was really about passing appropriations bills, the annual bills that are required to authorize spending by federal agencies. <clears throat> um, and uh, the Democrats, uh, led by President Clinton at that time, were facing a Republican Congress led primarily by Speaker Newt Gingrich. Uh, and uh, it produced a, a standoff between the two. Uh, Gingrich and the Republicans insisted on deep cuts uh, in federal programs as a condition for passing those spending bills, 
uh, and the Democrats refused to go as far as the Republicans wanted. The result was that the House, led by Gingrich, uh, failed to pass the spending bills. Um, now, of course, spending bills, once passed, uh, create obligations. Federal agencies can spend the money. And when our revenues, taxes, don't cover that uh, spending, uh, we create a deficit. And that requires that the federal government borrow uh, in order to cover the difference between revenues and spending. Uh, so it was related, but technically it was over, the government shutdown was over the issue of, of spending bills. Um, <clears throat> and both issues are at stake this year, once again. Uh, we have uh, both a debt limit, which is being reached maybe uh, this week, um, and uh, forcing the Treasury Department to uh, sort of juggle the books in order to prevent a default on our uh, ability to pay debts. Um, and later this year, we have to pass spending bills. And for both the Republicans in Congress, especially the new majority in the House, is threatening um, to fail to pass the required bills uh, unless they get what they want from the Senate and the president, both controlled, <clears throat> uh, both, both, of course, controlled by the Democrats. You know, I guess, sir, the, 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 and you're absolutely right, and, um, and I wasn't clear, but I guess part of what I'm asking uh, to come back is that since uh, Woodrow Wilson in 1917, there hasn't been a lot of monkeying around with appropriation bills and flirting with the debt limit and things of that nature. But it's, uh, I guess I'm looking at 95 as sort of this mark where those things, as you just articulated, could be weaponized. And so is that the... With, yeah. It doesn't seem like this has always been weaponized. So is 95 sort of the benchmark where these things became weaponized that before, and to some degree, in my view, were ceremonial? Well, it certainly was an important uh, juncture uh, in the history of um, conflict between Republicans and Democrats over uh, uh, fiscal policy, which, of course, is, is really about the role and function of the federal government. Uh, by 1995, Newt Gingrich had more or less taken over the Republican Party, and Gingrich advocated uh, a more uh, strongly conservative line on the part of, of, of Republicans. Uh, and when the Republicans took a majority in the House and the Senate uh, after the 1994 elections, uh, he sought to implement uh, that view that, that a, a more radically conservative uh, policy stance was required. Uh, and so it was kind of a turning point because it's when kind of Gingrichism uh, took over the Republican Party. Uh, and it included this idea that they should engage, the Republicans should engage in brinksmanship, should maximize their leverage uh, with the Democrats uh, by refusing to pass uh, the required spending bills and debt limit increases uh, to keep the government operating, they, they, their view was that the Democrats would cave. If, if they threatened disaster, uh, the Democrats would eventually cave and agree to deep cuts uh, in federal programs. Um, that's been their, the view of many Republicans ever since. So on several occasions since 95, as you say, um, the Republicans have engaged in this kind of, of leverage-taking brinksmanship, 
in order to try to gain leverage with with the Democrats. Uh, and in general, uh, they've managed to acquire modest changes, but um, the most conservative Republicans have been disappointed uh, with the result. And the party uh, has suffered uh, in public opinion uh, because they seem to be responsible for um, a near calamity uh, in our economy due to um, shutting down the government or forcing um, a default on government obligations. You, you just make a point. I want to I want to stay with that. That um, you 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 talked about the the hit that um, these measures have taken in terms of public opinion. Yet at the same time, and um, I, I don't mean to sound o o overly uh, partisan here, but but it, it seems like this particular Congress, even with a very small working majority in the House, House Republicans, that you have, say, roughly, what, 20 members of the Freedom Caucus that, are, that seem to be okay with that public hit, seem to be okay with the possible ramifications, and don't seem uh, willing to compromise, which is a hallmark of American um, democracy. Your thoughts, sir? Well, I agree. Uh, uh, what makes it even more difficult is that it's probably far more than 20 Republicans in the House. It was 20 Republicans who voted against uh, the election of Kevin McCarthy as Speaker, at least initially. But the Freedom Caucus itself uh, probably has closer to 50 members. Uh, and there may be additional members who are equally conservative uh, who have not joined the Freedom Caucus uh, or been invited to join. Uh, people like Congressman Gates, uh, not technically a member of the Freedom Caucus, um, but who are willing to um, uh, go to um, extremes uh, in order uh, to get what they want, which is a substantial cut uh, in major federal social programs. Uh, most of them do not want to cut defense. Most of them are after minimizing the federal government's role uh, in addressing uh, the challenges in American society. So they want long-term cuts in Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, education programs. Many of them would also advocate changes in, in other areas uh, like environmental protection and in government regulation more generally. Um, and so, so this is a major ideological battle. Uh, today's uh, Freedom Caucus renegades, those who were holding out uh, on Kevin McCarthy, um, are, are super critical of the way Republicans have used their leverage since Newt Gingrich's time in 1995. They think that uh, even leaders like Gingrich uh, and, and the subsequent speakers uh, like Boehner and Ryan, uh, simply caved uh, in too quickly to the Democrats. And they're uh, hoping for uh, a, a, a stronger uh, um, backbone, as they would say, uh, in their own leadership uh, to stand up against uh, the Democrats. Uh, this does put someone like Kevin McCarthy in a very difficult spot. He realizes as have his predecessors as Republican leaders in the House, that there's a big price to pay uh, for going too far 
and uh, forcing a government shutdown or worse yet, economic chaos uh, that's likely to follow um, a government default on its, on its obligations. Um, and so he realizes that they need to compromise at some point. The Senate after all is very marginally democratic and they have a democratic president, the president can veto. They realize they have to come to some agreement with, with the Senate and the president. And yet on the other hand, he has to deal with roughly a fifth, maybe now closer to a quarter of the House party that insists on maximizing their leverage. Uh, with a quarter or a fifth of, of his uh, party urging uh, going to the mat on these issues, he's, he's dealing with just a, a, a four or five seat majority uh, in the House. So he can only lose a few votes uh, from his own party. And we already know that there are moderates in the party. They're probably very conservative members, but more moderate than most who do not want to go in this direction. And if he bends too far in the direction of the Freedom Caucus types, uh, he's going to lose some votes in the more middle uh, of the spectrum. So he's in a very, very difficult bind. Uh, we've only seen the beginning. The speakership uh, election was only the beginning of his difficulties in managing his party. Well, it, it seems to me um, that after 15 rounds of voting that you just mentioned, with that being behind us, it seems uh, that, um, and and you when you look at um, revolutionary regimes all over the all over the world historically, that then there's the revolution. Then everyone sort of looks at each other and says, "Okay, now we have to govern." And so he's governing with with, with using your words about a quarter, roughly, of his majority that's operating in the world of certainty, which in some regards is antithetical to the America's democratic Republican form of government. And at some point, it seems to me, your, your thoughts, does he have to make a decision on what's best for the country or what's best for Kevin McCarthy? Well, probably every politician, including uh, leaders like McCarthy, uh, have to make some trade-offs. Uh, he probably wants to stay in the speakership uh, but he also has to worry about um, uh, whether his party can remain in the majority. If they screw things up so badly, uh, if the economy suffers uh, because of a government shutdown or a default on the debt, uh, his party is likely to suffer deeply um, and they could lose their majority. And with that, his speakership. Uh, so he's got to balance um some of these considerations and the typical leader will kind of muddle through these situations, try to devise some compromises. The real problem for uh, him of the events of the last week or so uh, is that um, it's, it's pretty clear that there are uh, more than enough Republicans uh, who oppose him and will insist on the most radical of strategies uh, even if it causes uh, the party very, very serious consequences. Um, and you know, in the end, there were still six Republicans that refused to vote uh, for McCarthy that, who voted present, enabling him to get elected, but refusing to go to the, uh, uh, 
to the extreme in their view of actually voting for him, like many of their uh, colleagues. So McCarthy knows that from the beginning. Uh, and, and so he's, he's going to articulate kind of a radical line, I think, uh, but just how he can combine that with what will inevitably be necessary compromises is not at all clear. It could be that the Republican House conference simply is not capable of generating uh, a majority. Now, there's always a possibility, of course, uh, that the uh, 212 uh, Democrats in the House, they may be 213 by that time once a seat in Virginia is filled, um, uh, could uh, find just enough Republicans uh, to form a majority of their own and prevent a government shutdown, prevent the disastrous outcome that follows uh, a government default on the debt. Um, and I expect that uh, Democratic leaders and the White House uh, are entertaining that possibility. Uh, it's, it's not going to be their first option because the Republicans themselves will try to make things work uh, on their own. But if they can't, I think we might find uh, the possibility of a cross-party coalition saving the day. Of course, that wouldn't happen unless those Republican uh, dissenters who joined with the Democrats uh, got some pretty substantial concessions from the Democrats. They wouldn't just cave. These are not liberal Republicans. They're hardly moderate Republicans. They're very quite conservative Republicans who do want deep spending cuts, but probably they will accept far, far less uh, than uh, the rest of the party. But, but but to your but to your last point, there are roughly I don't have it in, I don't have it in front of me, but there are roughly at, I believe ten maybe more uh, Republicans that won seats in twenty twenty two in districts carried by President Biden in twenty twenty. So the, they could conceivably be more amenable to a deal. Yeah, you got it. Uh, they do have to worry about getting elected, but um, and and so there's there's um, uh, a need for them. Uh, not to look too uh, radical uh, in their home uh, districts. Uh, and, and so that's a continuing challenge. Uh, the, of course, the House Republicans need to have them reelected uh, in order to maintain their House majority. So therein lies the rub, right? Um, how do you uh, satisfy um, the most right-wing Republicans uh, who uh, uh, now you know, number uh, something approaching 50 uh, of the 222 Republicans, uh, and at the same time, make sure that these, these, these Republicans who um, situate themselves more closely to the middle of the spectrum uh, get, get themselves reelected. It's, it's a real challenge. And of course, complicating all of that is the willingness of activists and donors people of wealth uh, to fund a very conservative uh, Republican candidates, even against incumbent Republicans in primaries, uh, which keeps the pressure on Republicans to say to stay quite uh, to stay quite conservative. And then throw into the mix in this Congress something we didn't have in 1995 or in 2011 when we had a serious debt limit uh, crisis. Um, the fact that we now have Donald Trump, 
um, being kind of a bomb thrower from the outside, uh, perhaps setting uh, a standard for what's acceptable in some uh, quarters or segments of the Republican Party. Uh, that's something which the Republican leadership, um, even though McCarthy was backed by um, backed by Trump, uh, which, but it's something that McConnell, or I should say McCarthy, cannot really control. And the irony, of course, is that when President Trump was was president, he asked <clears throat> Republican, Republicans in Congress, and they agreed, uh, to suspend the debt limit on two occasions so that it didn't become an issue uh, during his administration. These were temporary suspensions, so the debt limit kicked in uh, again eventually. But on two occasions, um, uh, Trump and the Republican Congress suspended the debt limit uh, because it was in the president's interest uh, not to uh, fight over the debt limit uh, and bring attention to the fact that um, a pretty serious increase in deficit spending was occurring during his administration. And of course, when the COVID crisis set in, uh, federal spending went way up and the deficit soared. Uh, and at that time, the uh, debt limit was suspended. So now that the Democrats are back in the White House and in control of the Senate, uh, Republicans are changing their tune yet once again and insisting that the debt limit is something that should not be increased or at a minimum should not be increased without um, some maximal, very large changes uh, in federal spending policy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and to your point, I, I think uh, former President Trump has already issued, tweeted or whatever he did that this uh, Freedom Caucus should hold on and get rollbacks on everything that's been passed in the last two years before agreeing to, to raise the debt limit, if you would. One of the things that um, you touched on it, but I, I want to just uh, come back to it, is that the, the, so the debt ceiling argument, if you would, is on one side, this is what a, uh, the, in this case, Republicans want going forward, and they're willing to um, not approve obligations that the United States has already made in its past. So, it, so the argument in some respects, at least to me, seems counterintuitive and fiscally irresponsible. I mean, I wonder how, am I, am I missing something there? Or is, that, is that essentially accurate? It's accurate. I, you know, um, Congress does make many, many decisions about spending policy and um, about tax policy that, of course, generates the revenues. And the deficit that we observe is the difference between the spending uh, and those revenues. Uh, so Congress is making decisions about fiscal policy all the time, and it adds up to a certain deficit that, um, you know, the, the executive branch, the Treasury Department is obligated uh, to cover through bar borrowing. The additional cap on borrowing authority uh, in the view of many, including me, really doesn't make a lot of sense. Congress has approved, has approved the mix of spending and revenue. And so, you know, we should be uh, realizing that that generates perhaps a deficit and increases the debt. And, and we, have a, we have a legal um, and moral obligation uh, to, to cover it, to artificially cap it uh, and put uh, at risk uh, the uh, good faith and credit 
of the United States um, seems uh, insane. Um, we either should not have a debt limit at all, uh, or um, there should be some automated way uh, to increase it to account for the spending and revenue uh, decisions that Congress has made. Um, many, many observers of congressional budget politics over the decades have, have said just this. Uh, the House has tried to implement such a strategy um, uh, with something called the Gephardt Rule, named after Dick Gephardt, the former congressman from St. Louis, uh, who um, uh, in, um, uh, in the 1990s uh, got the House to approve an automatic uh, increase in the debt limit upon the passage of a of a congressional budget resolution. A budget resolution establishes the total spending and the total revenues. And so Gephardt's view, which the House accepted at the time, uh, was that then the debt, it, the total debt limit should be automatically increased to reflect those approved uh, spending and revenue totals. Well, the Republicans have since done away with the Gephardt rule. Uh, and the Senate had never agreed to it, primarily because the Republicans could filibuster uh, any effort to establish a Gephardt rule. Uh, but there are an awful lot of uh, uh, well-meaning um, uh, public servants who think that, that reestablishing something like a Gephardt rule for an automatic increase or to simply get rid of the debt limit makes all the sense in the world. I agree. Current Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen wrote a letter to Speaker McCarthy and she said, quote, failure to meet the government's obligations would cause irreparable harm to the U.S. economy, the livelihoods of all Americans and global financial stability. Is this hyperbole in your view? And if not, uh, could you explain to our listeners why this is an accurate statement? Yes, the failure to increase the debt limit and for the federal government to um, uh, discontinue borrowing uh, to cover the gap between spending and revenues would be um, disastrous. Uh, in, in the short run, it's just very expensive. In the long run, it's truly disastrous. Uh, in the short run, uh, the Treasury Department probably will start even later this week um, uh, taking some extraordinary measures. Well, extraordinary measures uh, means that the treasury, you know, the federal government has many spending accounts uh, and revenue accounts. What the Treasury Department can do, some of those uh, accounts run out of money, and that requires the borrowing, but some other accounts um, have uh, um, a little bit more of a cushion. And so what they can do through ex what they call extraordinary measures, the ones that uh, Secretary Yellen mentioned in her letter to the speaker, is shift the cash around so that they don't have to borrow to cover the costs in the, account, the accounts that are running low. Uh, but they're taking that cash away from somewhere else um, uh, in order to uh, accommodate that. And that creates great, great inefficiencies. Some of that money uh, in those other accounts was being invested and, and the federal government was earning some interest on it. Well, all that interest is lost uh, when they, they start playing these games. And then after the crisis, if, they, if the crisis ends, and so far they have all ended, uh, they want to replenish the accounts from which they took 
money. Um, and uh, that itself require, requires additional borrowing. Uh, so the net uh, effect is to increase the long-term debt, ironically, uh, of the federal government. So this is very costly. A, a reasonable estimate uh, of the costs of, of uh, these crises uh, over the last uh, decade or so, dozen years or so, is several hundred billion dollars uh, to the federal government. It's it's really truly a cost. And then and then we overcame each one of those crises. But what if we don't? What if the federal government really must default uh, on uh, uh, on its debt? Well, what that means is that people like you and me, or big institutions like the major retirement funds and major corporations that buy treasury bonds uh, will not get paid uh, when um, those bonds payments become due. Now, that's a pretty serious problem because many parts of the economy and many individuals and many big institutions depended on those bonds um, payments coming through on time. So there'll be a whole bunch of uh, many, many parts of the economy, big important parts of the economy that will be without uh, the repayment that they expected. That uh, is going, you know, th that could easily uh, cause a recession or deeper uh, when um, expected uh, income uh, it falls far short. If you anticipate this or you experience it once, you're going to demand higher interest rates from the federal government the next time you buy a, a bond. You're taking a bigger risk, so now um, you're going to demand a higher interest rate. Well, that higher interest rate means the federal government's paying you more interest for purchasing a, a bond, and that costs the federal government money. That could easily add up to hundreds or trillions of dollars if it lasted very long. And of course, this is a worldwide phenomenon. U.S. Treasury bonds are considered among the safest investments across the world. And so it's not just in the United States. It's not just temporary, but it could be very deep and very lasting. So I, I buy the argument um, that uh, some Republicans see as just merely scare tactics. But I buy the argument that this is extremely risky brinksmanship on on uh, the part of the Republicans. It could have a completely disastrous effects on the economy. Now, there are some Republicans on the far, far right who say that's exactly what gives them the leverage to force deep concessions from the Democrats. The Democrats believe that it's completely disastrous and so they'll, they'll cave in order to avoid that eventuality. So um, that's the situation we're in. There are clearly some Republicans, maybe many Republicans, whether or not it's a majority of House Republicans, don't, we don't know yet, um, who uh, want to use the leverage um, that uh, these uh, uh, debt limit increases uh, give them more effectively than they have in the past. It, it seems, uh, according to the Washington Post, that uh, as a certain members of House Republicans have already sort of issue uh, what the Post is calling emergency plan, if the House and the, and the White House can't, can't agree that um, the cuts that should be made. I, I, I guess I'm, one, I'm wondering, sir, how much do you believe that House Republicans are emboldened by the fact that, depending on how much, much stock you, one puts in polling, 
the President Biden's approval uh, languishes in the low 40s. Does that embolden them to take this type of action? Well, it does. But of course, their approval ratings are not so good either, uh, far worse. Uh, so um, I don't think it's so much about approval ratings. I think they want to win elections. Uh, and if the public opinion turns against them on this issue, uh, they, they, they will suffer. Um, and McCarthy knows that. The, the trouble is there are elements of the Republican Party who don't care. Uh, who really want the radical changes in the role of the federal government in American life. And they're willing to take uh, huge risks uh, in order to um, accomplish that. Uh, and there are some locations, some House districts, even some states, but mainly House districts, where opinions fairly lopsidedly in favor of that conservative view. Um, and so the, those Republicans, um, when their party has such a small majority, have a great deal of leverage uh, with their own with their own leadership. Uh, and just how far the leadership is willing to bend uh, is unclear. Clearly, the leadership uh, at some point will lose support from the more middle ground in their party if they bend too far. But if they want a conservative outcome, they need the whole party together because there are no Democrats who are as conservative as those Republicans are, even the more moderate of them. Uh, so this is a difficult balancing act for, for McCarthy. The one thing observers um, uh, seem to conclude from the events of the last uh, several weeks, uh, culminating in the speakership election, um, is, that, is, is that maybe McCarthy is not capable of leading this party very well. Uh, maybe it's due to his own limitations. He's not very articulate. Uh, he's um, uh, maybe less skilled uh, in dealing with some of these uh, renegades than uh, he should be. Um, uh, and, and that kind of criticism is out there. And, and, and if, if it's true, then, then I think we're in for a very rough ride. Uh, it's entirely possible, though, that there's no one who would be acceptable to the 90% of the party that, that supported McCarthy from the start, uh, maybe there's no one acceptable to them that's gonna be acceptable to, uh, to the 20 renegades. Uh, and uh, we just don't know how far that's going to go. Um, I'd like to think that at some point, they will recognize that the party's interests and the nation's interests require some kind of a compromise but just how much harm can be done before we get to that point is something we don't know yet. Uh, how, how would you respond to a, uh, a popular phrase uh, uh, for some, that all Republicans are asking of the federal government is to do what Americans are asked to do, which is to live within its means. Why, in your view, is that an accurate analogy? Well, yeah, and it, the, the 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 analogy usually is that we should see the federal um, debt as a credit card, and there should be a credit limit, <laughs> um, as uh, as we all have on our credit cards, uh, in order to protect us and to protect our um, our bankers. <laughs> um, well, you know, the the big difference here is that if the federal government fails. Uh, to uh, increase the debt limit and defaults on its existing debt. Keep in mind that um, the debt at any one time is already incurred debt. It's not future debt, it's incurred debt. 
Um, and so we've already overspent. We've already done it. Uh, so the question really is whether or not we have an obligation to go ahead and, and, and pay that. More than that, we've also made additional promises. Um, uh, so we've, we've promised our vendors that we're going to pay them back for their services they've provided uh, uh, and so on. And, and it's true that, that we could re-prioritize re, um, spending we could cut spending, we could raise revenues uh, and generate a, a balanced budget or even um, a budget that runs in the black. But we don't um, uh, because we have a big society and a big government uh, and with lots of obligations. And the feeling is, is that we're better off uh, borrowing than, than um, cutting uh, that balance back. You know, another analogy and competing analogy is, is uh, you know, we all borrow uh, for a house mortgage or state governments borrow uh, in order to build freeways. Well, why do they do, why do people make those forms of spending? Well, they see it as an investment. You know, if a, if a state's highways and infrastructure completely um, crumbled, uh, the state's economy would be hurt. So we invest in many things in order that we can make even more money, that the society can improve, develop, um, and improve our way of living. Um, and so when we invest in education, or we think when we invest in science, uh, we invest in infrastructure, uh, even when we invest in defense in order to protect um, our investments and to protect our society in a dangerous world, we think we're doing something that's that's actually wise, even as a financial uh, decisions. Uh, so, is it worth to borrow uh, to to um, acquire the benefits of that spending? Many people would say yes. Of course, it's willing. Uh, uh, we're willing to borrow it, it, because we're all going to make um, the society is going to make a higher income, so to speak, by virtue of doing so. How would you then respond to those who look at this present potential crisis and they say, yeah, Professor Smith, we've been here before. It's it's saber rattling that will eventually get worked out. Is this is this scenario any different from, say, previous scenarios? And how do you see that? Well, it looks like <clears throat> it looks like um, a larger part of the House majority party. Uh, is taking the stance that um, uh, that no compromise uh, with the Democrats is wise and desirable, uh, and that what, whatever they say should be done, we we don't know yet what their demands are, but we can assume that they're fairly serious cuts um, in the major mandatory programs, Social Security and Medicare, and in many other federal social and domestic uh, programs. Uh, and yet they advocate also defense spending increases. So pretty deep cuts on the domestic side. Uh, when, however they end up defining them, uh, that, 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 they should, uh, that we should stick to that. It looks like um, they've informally defined that uh, as the fiscal 2022 um, uh, budget levels. 
that that should be, that we should not increase spending at any time over the next 10 years in their view, uh, above that 2022 uh, level. Uh, and so that was the level for the fiscal year that ended way back at the end of September, 2022. We should be stuck with that, with that level. Well, that means a cut, <clears throat> already a cut, because in 2023, we're spending more than we did in 2022. Some of that's merely inflationary increases. Some of it's increases in defense spending where we've deemed it necessary to increase defense uh, spending. After all, we're spending many, many um, hundreds of millions of dollars in Ukraine. Uh, <clears throat> and, and so at a minimum, I think we're, we're going to see uh, them insisting on, on a plan that's some, somewhat similar to what uh, McCarthy appears to have agreed to informally of spending, limiting spending at the 2022 level. That, however, uh, is, uh, is, is a fairly radical change if you consider that we don't make any adjustments for inflation uh, over the next 10 years uh, and maintain that level of, of spending. Uh, it, it's a uh, it's very radical change uh, and would force uh, huge cuts in uh, American and uh, in U.S. social programs uh, to see it happen. Earlier in our conversation, you talked about um, the belief that currently holds that investing in United States bonds is one of the safest investments one can make. But when we, we've been talking a lot about um, U.S. policy impact on certain programs domestically, but at the end, this is really a potentially, you know, global issue. If we are to uh, fail, if we fail to limit the debt ceiling and pay for the obligations that are already made, this is this has global ramifications. Talk about those, if you would. Well, I mean, everyone with you know a, a very large share of American Treasury bonds are sold uh, <clears throat> uh, to to foreign entities. Uh, many European banks uh, and investors, uh, uh, small and large, uh, buy U.S. Treasuries because it's uh, a fairly safe uh, investment. If <clears throat> if we default and uh, uh, all of those foreign interests lose a chunk of income that they counted on having, that's money they can't spend. That's money that is taken away from the economy. Uh, and can cause a worldwide recession or help us move in that direction. And of course, a lot of them buy American products uh, with the profits they make on U.S. treasuries. So the U.S. economy suffers uh, very, very directly and indirectly if, if, if the world economy suffers. So it's a big deal. There's nothing as large as the market uh, for U.S. treasuries uh, anywhere else in the world. There's no obvious place for that money to go and make as much money as they can on U.S. Treasuries. The long-term effect on U.S. Treasuries, of course, is that people will have less confidence in them and demand higher interest rates. That means that our long-term cost for maintaining our current debt and for future acquired debt uh, is going to be much higher uh, and, cost, and cost us more. We'll have to pay more in taxes to cover it, or we're going to just generate more debt, which is just the opposite of, of what these uh, so-called fiscal conservatives uh, say they want. But is, is, is it also uh, accurate to, to, to offer that none, at least it appears, that, that none of the proposed cuts 
includes rollbacks in the tax cuts um, that have been made largely without any corresponding spending cuts. So tax cuts are not part of this package of cuts that they traditionally propose. Would that be accurate? Right, right. Uh, the Republicans would even go farther and say they want to restore some of the tax cuts that the Democrats managed to roll back um, in the last Congress. So um, uh, revenues uh, are not likely to see any kind of a boost, um, a substantial boost in any um, compromise package between these House Republicans and the Democrats in charge of the Senate or the White House. Um, but you're exactly right that we that we should be thinking about revenues, um, not just spending. That that the uh, problem is is as much revenues as it is as it is spending, and that we can make adjustments in in both places. That may be you know what we end up seeing is some modest increases in 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 revenues along with spending cuts. But that is not what the House Republicans, at least not the, what the renegades, uh, are advocating. I'm going to uh, we're going to we're going to grant you the the, the title of uh, special counsel to the president. That's your new title. You didn't know that, but you you have that title now, and and you are talking with the president. How is there any way that this could potentially uh, disaster, financial disaster, potentially be avoided in your in your view. Well, the the, the best that um, I think the administration can do is to um, uh, offer to meet and open discussions uh, with all congressional leaders, including the Republican leadership of the House. Um, the uh, the Senate Republicans are are part of the problem. Uh, McConnell, their leader, Mitch McConnell, um, has long demanded um, spending cuts as a condition for passing debt limit increases too. So, and and since the Senate uh, Republicans can filibuster uh, effectively, they have 49 seats. Uh, in order to overcome a filibuster, you need 41. Um, uh, you, you, you need 60 votes. And so the, the Democrats need at least nine Democrats to over or Republicans to overcome a Republican filibuster. So this means working with both McConnell and uh, with McCarthy. Um, working with McConnell's probably more likely to produce um, an agreement. Um, so getting both McConnell and McCarthy in the same room talking about uh, an approach to this, uh, keeping the Democratic leadership involved, of course, uh, is, is I think, the way to go. Uh, uh, the president can offer, as he will, he'll send a, a budget proposals to Congress. He's actually required to. Uh, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, those can be reasonable um, uh, but Democratic uh, proposals. Uh, but they're only the starting point. And so he's going to need the Republicans to come in and, and uh, sort of set, set the tone for that meeting. But the best he can do from the Democrats' point of view is to show an openness to negotiate uh, and a willingness to talk and a willingness to come to an agreement that is in the nation's interest with some limits, like no significant changes in Social Security and Medicare, uh, which um, 
really are essential because you can never get Democrats on the Hill to agree to those uh, kinds, uh, deeper, deep changes in Medicare or, or Social Security. So I think, I think he needs to be modest in his expectations, but he also needs to show an openness and willingness to compromise. Um, if he persuades Americans that, um, that he's serious about that, that, he, that his position on compromising and being open to discussion is genuine, uh, then he puts the Republicans in the position of taking the blame uh, for failing uh, to find an acceptable outcome. Well, you, you just your last point, you sort of touch on uh, what, what I what I always hold is that the Oval Office is the greatest home court advantage uh, in the world. So I'm hearing you say that he would have to, in addition, he would have to use the power of the Oval Office to sort of uh, persuade well, public. Go ahead. That's right. That's right. I think with middle of the road Americans, uh, people are pretty persuaded that um, Biden's heart is in the right place. I'm not entirely sure that they're persuaded that he's fully capable of, of pulling this off. Um, what works for him is the fact that he's been very successful in the last two years, far beyond what many thought he could do. He managed to get major pieces of legislation, highly compromised to be sure, uh, through Congress when a complete gridlock was probably uh, the most common expectation. So he's going into this, this year uh, with, with uh, something with some momentum. Uh, but I think the, the change in party control of the House and the, in, in the, in the result of the speaker election process and the adoption of new rules, and as, as in, at least as important, um, McCarthy's um, informal promises uh, to back uh, the renegades' views on holding, um, gaining some leverage uh, over the over the Democrats on budgeting, um, uh, create create a very serious problem. And I, I think it's first a Republican problem. Uh, and if they can't solve their problem, uh, the Democrats cannot. Uh, so it's first a Republican problem and mainly a House Republican problem. Professor Stephen Smith, sir, I wanna thank you uh, for joining me today on The Public Morality. We've, we've greatly appreciated your insights, sir. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Rally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Paul McGraw is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.